Now, while I was watching, that's the third one. The third I was watching lets you say, oh, now time to pick up. We're entering a new stage. Thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His attire was white like snow. The hair of his head was like lamb's wool. All of a sudden he sees God. Now, how do we know this is God? Because he's described as the Ancient of Days. And this is his title that is used in multiple other places throughout the Bible. The Ancient of Days can mean one of two things. Historically, culturally speaking, this phrase just means like really old. Like, wait, gee, Grandpa, you're really ancient. Okay? And it was a phrase that just referred to like, you're really old. And the fact that he's going to be described with white hair adds to that image. Not that God has white hair or anything, that kind of stuff. But the, this is all metaphorical language. Just like the, the empires are not really beasts. This is all metaphorical language. So that is an often um, thing. But it could also have this metaphorical idea of the ancient before days began, as in like an eternal kind of a sense, that he was ancient before time even began, and he's eternal past. And if he's eternal past, he'll be eternal future. Now remember, no pagan god can claim that. The pagan gods had a beginning when they came out of the chaos and they came out of the, the, the cosmic mountain. And they have a time where they'll end and they die. And there's lots of mythology stories about gods dying and disappearing, not because they're killed. Gods can't die like you and I. They don't die in war and they don't die of starvation. They die when people forget them and stop worshiping them. That's how they die in the pagan mythologies. And so this points to the fact that he is an eternal god that has been with Israel for a long time. And that's the other thing this ancient days is communicating is, I'm your God that has been with you from the very beginning that you were formed, coming out of, under Abraham and coming out of Egypt. And I am still the God that will be with you when the end of the world is happening, whatever you think that is. Because everything is like the end of the world every time something bad happens to us. So I will be there. He took his seat. Now taking his seat... Is final. These beasts don't have a seat. They don't have a seat. They come out of the sea, they're raging, then they're torn down and ripped apart, and the new beast comes in, and they don't actually have time to take a seat. But God takes a seat, and that communicates a permanence and a finality to things. His hair was white like, sorry, his attire was white like snow. We know that this is an image of purity and righteousness. When clothes are described as being white, it represents the fact that you're clothed in righteousness and purity. You can see this in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest is coming back, and he's covered in these filthy garments, which represent sin, and God clothes him in white attire so that he can be righteous to be the high priest now that they return. And so this represents his righteousness. His hair of his head was like lamb's wool. This doesn't actually represent old age. In the ancient world, white hair is not associated with old age like it is in America. White hair is associated with experience and wisdom because you've been around a long time to make your stupid mistakes and learn from it and then now give better advice to people. In America, we don't value the elders and their wisdom as a whole. I don't mean like nobody does. But in the ancient world, not only did they value their elders and their wisdom and leadership, but they practically worshipped them. 
And when they died, they would actually build altars to them and little statues and actually pray to them. And this is probably where we get this idea of guardian angels. We've mixed that with this because nowhere does the Bible ever describe any kind of guardian angel being assigned to you specifically. And so they actually would seek them. Like any, the, probably the, There's lots of examples in movies that I can give you, but the most famous one that most people have a better chance of seeing is Princess Bride when Inigo Montoya is always like, see, like oh, Father, guide my sword and all this kind of stuff. Like the dad from the afterlife is still like guiding him and directing him and that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of how they viewed it. So the white hair does not exactly represent old because that's the ancient of days. It represents wisdom. Wisdom. Like lamb's wool. Now that's interesting because lamb is sacrificial. And you, I really think that that would mean really not that much until Christ comes along. And then you can really truly make the connection. His throne was ablaze with fire and his wheels were all aflame. A river of fire was streaming forth and proceeding from his presence. Many thousands were ministering to him. Many tens of thousands stood ready to serve him. The court was convened and the books were open. That thrones were set up. Now, the thrones knows that he takes a seat and thrones are set up around him. This thrones probably refers to the sons of God or the angels that sit on thrones with him. If you weren't here for the divine council thing, you can go on my website and listen to that. But basically, the Bible goes throughout making it very clear that there are other angelic beings that have positions of authority in heaven. And specifically in Psalm 82 and in 89... God specifically says that he has assigned, Psalm 82, Psalm 82 and 89, God specifically assigns um, headship to the angels over certain nations. And we'll talk about that a lot more in Daniel 10. But he literally is like assigned a son of God, which we would know as angels. The first testament constantly calls them sons of God. The second testament starts calling them angels. So he assigns a son of God to rule over each nation. But then these sons of God go rogue and start misleading the nations, and the nations follow them and mislead the sons of God as well. But there are some good ones that stay with him. And we see this in different places in the Bible, where specifically Second Kings, or First Kings chapter 22, God, Micaiah says, I had this vision of heaven, and before God there were all these beings, these angels. And God says, hey, who will go out and get Ahab killed? Ahab's a bad king. He deserves to die. We need him to die in battle. How are we going to do this? And one says, well, let's do this. Another one says, let's do this. And another one says, let's do this. Another one says, let's do this. And God says, yes, do that. And he sends them out. And that's this idea of the divine counsel. Not that God needs advice. Not that God couldn't figure this out. But that God wants to share this with us. If he didn't want to share this with us, he would have never made us rulers and subduers in the garden when he says, the image of God, go and rule and subdue. He would never ask you to go out and witness to people because he doesn't need you to witness to people. He delegates and he shares the opportunity with us because he wants to have a relationship with us. And one thing that we love doing more as relational beings is doing things together. Okay, it's, it's good to talk with each other and that kind of stuff. And it's good to just sit next to each other in total silence sometimes. But what really builds relationships deeper and quicker is building and accomplishing things together.
going out. And this is why ministry tends to bind people closer much more quickly than just sitting at a cafe talking with each other. Not that that can't bind you, bond you, and not that that's not important. I'm just saying when you're sacrificing and serving and toiling in the ministry for God, you, you get bonded together way faster. And so there's this idea that that's what God wants. He could do it all of himself. But he wants us to join him, and that includes the angels. And so the thrones represent that. You also see this very clearly in Revelation chapter 4 when we're told that there are 24 thrones sitting around the throne of God in heaven and 24 elders sitting on top of it, and they all have crowns. That imagery there is that there are people or beings in heaven that God has delegated things to. He even tells the disciples, I'm going to make you rulers over things in the new kingdom. And the parable of the talents is about ruling. What is this fire? All throughout the ancient world, fire represents judgment. It always represents judgment. And the reason is, one of the quickest ways to destroy somebody and execute them is through fire. Now, I guess it's not the quickest, but that's the, like the most entertaining way for psychopaths who rule. And so, and fire is used to burn the animal sacrifices. And it's probably where it really got started in the ancient world is when everybody has this concept of animal sacrifice for the atonement of your sins, the way you do this, you burn the animal. And the whole point is that animal is you. You were supposed to be killed for your sins, but instead the animal is being burned for you in your place. And so fire became associated with judgment. And fire is used. And this is why the lake of fire is described as the lake of fire, because it's a symbol of judgment. And we see this throughout the Bible where God then actually takes the imagery of fire and pulls it onto himself in the Shekinah glory of God, where he actually appears as this giant pillar of fire and leads Israel out as he's judging Egypt. And then he goes off and he judges many of the enemies. And if Israel doesn't atone for their sins, then he'll consume them and judge them as well. Notice too that the fire goes out from the throne. And the minute the fire leaves the throne, it's the, the, the beasts begin to fall. And they begin to lose their power. And the fire is associated with the, the court was convened and the books were open. This is judgment day. This is judgment day. The only books that are ever mentioned is the book of the law. And the law, everyone dies. Because no one can meet the requirements of the law. And this is the point that Moses brings up. The law always kills. It always kills. And the author of Hebrews makes this point. That's why we are freed from the law through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because only God, Christ can meet the law. But even then, when Christ took our failure of meeting the law upon himself, what did the law do to Christ? It killed him. It killed him. And so the books are the law. And the court is going to judge the beasts. And the fire comes out and is the executioner. And this is God's chariot. Now in Ezekiel, notice that it says that, the, that his throne was all ablaze and his wheels were on fire. In Ezekiel's vision, when we were doing Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory sitting on a chariot and leaving the temple. And when he left the temple, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then he predicted that one day that chariot of fire that God sits on would come back to the temple one day. 
And so this is God's throne. And it's usually portrayed in the Bible as being portable because he doesn't sit in just one place like the pagan gods do. He's a God of everything. The pagan gods only rule over one thing. God rules over all of creation. Verse 11, Then I kept on watching because of the arrogant words of the horn that was speaking. And I was watching until the beast was killed and his body destroyed and thrown into the flaming fire. Now there you have that idea of fire being judgment. As for the rest of the beasts, the ruling authority had already been removed, though they were permitted to go on living for a time and a season. And I was watching the night visions. Now this is interesting because the Seleucids are completely destroyed. And the Greeks are completely destroyed. But the other beasts are allowed to live for a time, a little bit of a time, until their judgment would come later. So the thing that persecuted and dominated Israel more than anything else, Antiochus IV, is immediately destroyed and immediately judged and immediately dealt with. But the empires that are evil, but they weren't literally going out like a bunch of psychopaths and just persecuting and dominating people, are allowed to live for a little bit longer until a future judgment day. Now this is important because that future judgment day is Revelation. And it's chapters 18 and 19 specifically when all the angels in heaven begin to sing the praises of the fall of Babylon because Christ has returned. And Babylon is a metaphorical word in Revelation for all the empires. All the empires. As for the four beasts, the ruling authority had already been removed, though they were permitted to go on living for a time and a season and was watching the night visions. This is one of the most important passages to understand the Gospels. It says, And with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty, and all peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. One coming with the clouds of the sky. This phrase, coming with or coming on the clouds, is used to only describe Yahweh in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, the Psalms, um, the prophets, only Yahweh is described as coming on or with the clouds. And the reason this is true is because in the ancient world, the only thing that was above the clouds was the gods. And that makes sense. Because remember, for them, there is no such thing as outer space. And so the thing that rides the clouds is the gods. And the gods are often described as riding the clouds like a chariot. And Ra, in the mythology, is actually riding a chariot of clouds as he, he is the sun, as he moves through the sky with the sun rising and the sun setting, as he shoots flaming arrows behind him to destroy the darkness and keep it from swallowing him up because the night is chasing him like we know with the rotation. And so he is the cloud rider. And the idea of being the cloud rider or coming with the clouds is only used of the gods. And of course in the Bible, the gods aren't legitimate rulers. Only Yahweh is. So he is the only one who's the cloud rider. And many times in the Psalms, God says he wraps himself in the clouds. He comes in the clouds and he rides in the clouds. And yet, so this phrase refers to divinity. At its most simplistic level, it's saying that this figure is a God. Because sometimes the angels come on clouds. 
because they're seen as divine beings, but not just the only divine being. So at the least, it's a divine being. At the most, it's Yahweh. And there is no other way because this phrase is constantly used in that way. But then he goes on and says that when like the Son of Man was approaching. The Son of Man phrase is used all throughout the Bible and in the ancient Near East to refer to one who is human. There's this phrase called the Son of X. The X being the variable. And every time you see this phrase, son of X, it's a phrase that basically communicates the idea that whatever X is, is what the son is. So if you're doing a mathematical equation, X equals son. And whatever X is, is what the son is. So we see this when we see in Genesis 6 and in Job 1, when it says the sons of God. So the sons are gods, they're divine beings. And we see this in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 2, when it says, on the day that the sons of God presented themselves before Yahweh. And it's in heaven. Your translations probably say angels, if you have the NIV, but there's a footnote that says, in the Hebrew, sons of God. In Ezekiel, or in the book of Kings, we see the sons of the prophets. And it's not that these are biological sons of prophets, it's that they are prophets. This is the name that they've given their guild. They are called the sons of prophets. And then you even see this in our language today. There's this TV show that is pretty popular. I don't have cable, so I don't see it, but it's a TV show called Sons of Anarchy. And it's about these bikers, I think, like if anybody's ever seen it or heard of it. But they're the sons of anarchy. Now, the show is not saying that anarchy literally had a bunch of little children. That's not possible. But what it's saying is that these men are anarchy. And so this is what we see with the Son of Man. In fact, over 30 plus times, God refers to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel as Son of Man. And he says, Son of Man, get up and say this. Son of Man, get up and write this. Son of Man, da da da. He says this over and over again. So what he sees is Son of Man. He sees a human. Now, I know you're like, yeah, but it says like. And I know like is normally used as a simile. In this structure, this word like is actually being done in the sense of a vision. In the vision, none of this is really real. The animals aren't really real. They represent something else. And right now, what he's seeing is all these animals. Now, what is so significant about this human is that we have never seen a human in a heavenly vision ever. In all the First Testament, there's never been a human. And the reason is the only way you can get into heaven is if you're sinless. But other than Adam and Eve, no one is. And then Eve lost, Adam and Eve lost that. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or that you have the blood of Christ. And Christ hasn't died yet. The only way you can get to heaven is if you have one of those two things. So we never see humans in heaven. And these beasts are just these strange beasts. And so he's probably like really confused, like, oh my gosh, there's a human. But it's like a human because he doesn't know what to do with this. And the word like, the way that it's being used here, has more the idea of like, I don't know how to categorize this because everything I'm seeing is so weird and strange and foreign and there is no category for a human being in heaven. Yet everything still strongly points to a human because it's never described in some beastly way. It's not described in a mutated way. And it's not even described in an angelic way. It clearly says the Son of Man. And so this means that it's human. You're like, wait a minute. You're not supposed to have a human God, all right? 
It's been pounded into the Jewish mind that humans are not God. But then you go on, and it says that it was escorted before him. He approaches the throne. He walks right up to the throne of God, and it doesn't say anything about angels surrounding him. The only way, the only other way that you get into heaven, and only in a vision, you can't permanently get into heaven, but you can get into God's presence temporarily when he's on earth, or you can get into his presence through a vision temporarily if you're surrounded by angels. Because angels create like a shield from God's glory from eradicating you. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Galatians chapter 3, and Acts chapter 7, where we're told that when Moses was receiving the law, he was surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angels when he was in God's presence, because he couldn't handle that. Even when God came down and visited Abram in chapter 17, 18, he was surrounded by angels that came with him. So this means he's sinless. Because if he's, he's in heaven without angels and there is no blood of Christ, he's sinless. Then we're told that all ruling authority and all honor and all sovereignty was given to him and all nations and all languages groups were serving him. That is only used of Yahweh. Only Yahweh is the God of heaven and sky and everything between. Only God is the king of all nations. Only God says in chapter 19 of Exodus, Oh, the whole world belongs to me. No other pagan God claims that because no other God is that. And so now we're told that he's given all of this. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. Whose authority is absolutely eternal? Even when God puts the angels and the sons of God over power, over certain nations, they didn't have that all the time, and they won't always have that. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Nobody has an undestructible kingdom and eternal kingdom so for Yahweh. So you put all this together, and what you have is a human who is God and sinless and has all the authority of Yahweh. And Yahweh gives it to him. From this point on, the Jews never use the phrase Son of Man anymore. Because the Son of Man is this Daniel figure, and they don't know what to do with this. Because they know, think about it, think about the, the mind-blowingness of this. You've been pounding your head, there is only one God. You shall have no other gods before me. You went into exile because you worshipped multiple gods. God has made it very clear that I am not a human. And that's been ingrained in your head. And you finally learn after hundreds and hundreds of years of being punished by God and dying for your sins and going to exile, they finally come out. And what do they not do by the time Jesus comes along? They're no longer worshiping idols. They've finally gotten that out of their system. In fact, they're willing to die under Antiochus IV for not worshiping idols. Now, that doesn't mean no Jew worships idols, but the nation as a whole does not do it. And we've never seen that. Then all of a sudden, God throws this on you and says, Oh yeah, that human's God. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? But here's the conundrum. You can't say that the human's not God because it's in God's Bible and you're telling God that he's wrong and that's blasphemy and he'll judge you and take you into exile. But you can't say that it is God because that's blasphemy and he'll take you into exile. So what do you do with things that you don't understand religiously? You don't teach it. There's all these passages in the Bible that you've like, nobody's ever taught because it's weird and confusing. Or it's like, or like Jesus in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 in the book of John. You don't really hear a lot of sermons on those chapters because Jesus sounds like a good Catholic, works salvation. You're like, oh, that's not right. But we don't know how to explain it, so we don't, we don't teach that. 
Or the part where Phineas is like just shoving a javelin through people in the tabernacle when the two people are having sex. And you're like, well, that's weird. So we won't teach that. Okay, we don't know. So we, what we do, you just ignore it. And you're like, well, that's not in the Bible. They just ignored it. And they put it in this little box and locked it up and put it on a shelf really high up so nobody can reach it. And they just went on. And then this guy comes along. And he has the audacity to rip that thing out of the box, take it off the shelf, and shove it in everybody's face. Because what title did Jesus refer to himself more than anything else? The Son of Man. So you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say, get up and walk. Behold, you will see the Son of Man returning one day to judge the nations. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It's one of the reasons why the Pharisees didn't like him. Because he was always going to places you're not supposed to go. Because that's taboo. Even though it's biblical, it's still taboo. And he went there. And, he, he, and here's the thing. What he's saying is, there's nothing else in the Bible that portrays God-man. I mean, you've got Isaiah 53 about the Messiah dying for your sins. You, you've even got passages in Isaiah where it kind of talks about the Messiah having being called Almighty God. You've got places where you know the Messiah is going to be human because he's the root of David and he comes out of him. But there's no places literally put them together and couple them tightly together in a way that you cannot separate it, except for here. And this is why Jesus uses this phrase. Because Jesus has to be a human. Because only a human can represent us in our sins. Because only a human had sin. And only a human can die. God can't die. And God can't represent you in it because he's not a human. But only God is sinless enough to actually pay for your sins and not die for his own sins. And only God can conquer death and come back again. So your salvation is literally dependent upon Jesus being the God-man. And there's no other phrase in the Bible that he can use to describe that paradox except for the Son of Man. And he does it and he says things. So you may send the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Get up and walk. No, God would never let you do a miracle if you're blaspheming him. And yet he does a miracle, which he supposedly was blaspheming, saying that I can forgive sins, proving that he's not. And here's where it gets really powerful. When Caiaphas is putting him on trial, the high priest, Caiaphas says, do you say that you are the king of the Jews? Now, for a long time, Jesus doesn't answer any of those questions. But this is the moment that he does. And he doesn't just say, he actually doesn't say he's the king of the Jews. He goes further and he says, I tell you the truth. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Daniel 7, to judge you, the throne of Yahweh with the fire, Daniel 7. He literally says, I am the cloud rider that will judge you and I'm human. He is literally directly referring to this passage. And then he goes up into the clouds, and the disciples are all like, whoa. And the angels appear to them and say, he will return the same way that he left, the cloud rider. This is Christ. Because he's the only one who's been given all authority who did not already have it. Now you're like, wait a minute. How in the world did Jesus, if he is the second member of the Trinity, and he always has been God, then He's always had all power and sovereignty and authority, right? But if he's being given all power and sovereignty and authority, then he must not have it in order to have to give it, which means he had to give it up at one time to not have it in order to get it. Does that make sense? 
If you're God, you've always had authority and power. But now God is giving it to him, which means he doesn't have it. Which means in order to be given it, he had to give it up because he did have it at one time. You're like, when did that happen? Philippians chapter 2. Though Jesus, being equal with God, did not see his equality as something to exploit, but emptied himself of his authority and became a human in order to suffer on the cross. Hebrews chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 1 verses 4. That Jesus is the glory of God, the exact copy of God, sits in the right hand of God, but became a human, died on the cross, atoned for sins, and is now exalted and vindicated back to the throne of God. Jesus gave it up when he incarnated himself. He temporarily gave up his authority. Now, he didn't stop being God, but he stopped having the right to exercise his authority so that he could become a servant and learn obedience according to Romans, or sorry, Hebrews 4. It's kind of like I've used this example before when I taught Hebrews, but I could beat the crap out of my little girls, okay? I don't, and I know that's a horrible image to have in your head, but it makes my point. I could beat the crap out of my little girls easily. They do not stand a chance against me, even all like matched up, even like just yesterday we were in the front yard wrestling each other, okay? And there were people driving by. And they can make one, two conclusions. There's a father wrestling with his little girls. Or they can be like, oh my gosh, that's so pathetic. That grown man is getting beaten up by a six-year-old. What is wrong with him? But nobody thinks that. Nobody in their right mind. What they think is he has the ability to defeat them, but he's chosen not to exercise the full strength of his power because he loves them. The Philippians isn't saying that Jesus ceased to be God. It's saying that though he is equal with God, he chose not to exploit his authority on us. Instead, he became a servant even to the point of death. He gave up the right to exercise his authority and to rule the world so he can know what it was like to be a human and to learn and to suffer so that he, according to Hebrews 4, can relate to us along all points of temptation and give us compassion. And, and, and give us ability to get through it. This is why Jesus goes to the woman, the, 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 the women who met him at the tomb, and they said, do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. So what scene is this? In my best understanding, Jesus emptied himself in the incarnation in order to become this human. And he goes on the earth and he dies on the cross for sins. He's resurrected from the grave. And then he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father yet. He stays with him another 40 days, and then he sends into heaven. Now in the Gospels, Matthew and Acts chapter 1, you should envision Jesus going up into the heavens. But the very next scene should be the prequel where we come to Daniel 7, and this is him popping up into heaven and walking up to the throne of God. And God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And according to 1 Peter, he is vindicated because he was willing to die. He was willing to obey to the point of death. And so now he has proven himself obedient to the point of death. And he puts his hand out and God gives it all back to him again. And not that there's literally a physical exchange here, but that this is a ceremonial metaphorical way of saying he has been vindicated. And I really, truly believe this is literally the next seconds 
and I know heaven's outside of time, after the ascension at the end of Matthew at the beginning of Acts. And he's being given all back. And that's what Daniel's seeing. Because that's when the beasts were conquered. They're allowed to still remain for a time. All the foreign empires ruling over the world, right? But do they have their hold over us anymore? No, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Because now for the first time ever, we have the Holy Spirit in us because of the cross. And I really think that this is what this is pointing to. He's envisioning a day where the nations can't really take our life from us in an eternal sense. This is why God says, don't fear the one that can kill your body. Fear the one that can kill your soul. In the ancient world, there was no going to heaven until Christ died for you. And so death was very real scary. But yet the gospel writers, and the New, sorry, the New Testament says, oh, death, where is your sting now? It's lost its power over us. Now, that doesn't mean we're still not afraid and there's still not bad things to it and that kind of stuff, but it's lost its power, its permanence, its hold over us. The nations don't have that over us anymore. The beasts don't have that over us anymore because Christ has dealt with them. But they're still here for a while to inflict pain for a while until Christ will finally and completely deal with them. And that's what he told Caiaphas. You will see me coming back and I will actually judge you. Not just deal with sin and take away your power over my people, but I will actually judge you. And that's the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? And that's how I see Daniel and Revelation fitting together in a brief kind of a way. 